Turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. We're looking at different passages out of 1 Corinthians and a few out of some other passages as well this morning. A few other books. Ask this question maybe to start with, and that is, why are we doing this this morning? Why do we have council meeting? What's the point? Some of you might be saying, I've wondered that myself, been asking that for a long time. Why do we bother with it? Shouldn't we just examine ourselves and get on with life? Is that kind of maybe what, we, what you think? And I'll probably mention this again later, but one of the things that concerns me is, as I see our conservative Anabaptist churches, and I don't think we're any different, but maybe a drive or a push toward being more Protestant evangelical than Anabaptist. And you might say, well, I don't know that there's much difference. Well, there are drastic differences in our theology, our beliefs, what we actually believe. But I think we've lost a lot of that. And it's probably because most of us know what we would consider to be uh, good Christian people that aren't Anabaptist. We don't want to go around judging everyone. That's not our responsibility. We don't need to do that. But do we have something special that we may be losing and someday look back and say, what have we lost? Where are we? And, and so why do we do something like this this morning? And I think to start with, I would like to say that it is a matter of brotherhood and love for each other. Do we really care about each other and does brotherhood really matter? And we're going to look at some actual, some historical things regarding council meeting. And maybe you don't care about those things, but maybe to put into perspective a little bit of why we do what we do. Now, sometimes you might hear the the term preparatory services. And frankly, that's probably more what we have today than actual council meeting. And I'm not saying that that's totally wrong, but I think we maybe have shifted our pendulum over to to that without any part of the council meeting being involved because of maybe some abuses or almost excesses in the council meeting area where people feared communion because of what was going to come up at council meeting. I don't like that. I don't want to go there. But have we maybe lost a little something in brotherhood accountability by moving so far away from that that we no longer want to keep each other accountable in our Christian lives? Well, why would we want to keep each other accountable and why do we want to be careful maybe of the things that we do in church and in the brotherhood because of offending others? Uh, and I'm, so when I use the word offend, I think you've heard me explain this before, I think the biblical use of offend is not... Uh, you annoy me by doing that, but when we offend people by actually taking liberties that we can take and still maintain our Christian life, but may lead a weaker brother or sister in a direction because they say, well, if they can do it, I can do it, and being weaker, it may lead them off to where they eventually actually lose their Christianity, and that's what being offended me is like setting a snare for someone. Thinking about that, let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. 
And I'm not going to make a lot of comments on this passage. I'm going to read through it, and you just uh, follow along, starting at verse 1. Now, as touching things offered unto idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffeth up, but charity, or love, edifieth, or builds up. So, he's saying here, if we, we know and understand that idol, something offered to an idol, it doesn't really matter, is what he's saying. Knowledge would tell you that. Knowledge uh, can make one proud or puffed up, but love wants to build up the other person. So there's something in my life that I say, well, I don't know why I can't do this. I, why should this make a big difference? It's not that big a deal. And maybe it's not that big a deal. But if you, taking liberty in that area, lead someone else down the wrong path, is that pride and being puffed up, or is that love and being concerned about someone else and, and our attempt to build others up? Verse 2, And if any man think that, we, that he knoweth anything, he knoweth nothing yet as he ought to know. But if any man love God, the same is no one of him. As concerning, therefore, the eating of those things that are offered in sacrifice and the idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world, and there is none other God but one. For though there be that are called gods, whether in heaven or in earth, as there be gods many and lords many, but to us there is but one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we in him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we by him. Howbeit there it is not in every man that knowledge or that understanding. For some, with conscience of the idol unto his, this hour, eat it as a thing offered unto an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. But meat commendeth us not to God, for neither if we eat are we the better, neither if we eat not are we the worse. But take heed, lest by any means this liberty or this freedom of yours become a stumbling block to them that are weak. For if any man see thee which hath knowledge sit at meat in the idol's temple, shall not the conscience of him that is weak be emboldened to eat those things which are offered to idols? And through thy knowledge or your understanding shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died? But when you sin so against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Wherefore, if meat make my brother to offend, I will eat no flesh while the world standeth, lest I make my brother to offend. That's brotherhood. That's love. That's caring about each other. And sometimes caring about each other, um, it means we challenge each other. We encourage each other. We we speak to each other about areas of concern that we may have in their lives and talk to them. Better to talk to them than to someone else. Um, I told someone recently here, I'm, I'm working on a message I'd like to share at some point on an area probably that we all struggle with, and that's a thing called gossip. And so we can talk to others about something in someone's life, and at some point, we may need to if they won't hear us. Matthew 18 brings that out. But we should go and talk to them if we really love and care about them. Now, we say, well, how does this work as far as 
brotherhood and accountability and confessing our faults and so forth. In James chapter 5, it says, Confess your faults one to another and pray one for another that you may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. And that's in the context of anointing with oil and people being healed. Do we confess our faults, our sins, our struggles one to another and share that and so that we can pray one for another? Turn with me to 1 Peter. First Peter chapter one. I'll be reading verses twenty-six. I'm sorry, twenty-three and twenty-four. And I don't think that's the passage I wanted. Let's go to 1 John as we think about loving each other. 1 John chapter 3. Starting at verse 14. It says, We know that we have passed from death unto life because we love the brother. He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. Whoso hateth his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer hath eternal life abiding in him. Hereby perceive we the love of God, because he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoso hateth this world's good, and seeth his brother have need, and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? My little children... Let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Now, here it says, if you see your brother has need and you aren't willing to share with him, do you really love him? It says, let's not just love in word. Don't just say, oh, I love my brother. I love my church. I love everybody in it. There's nobody I hate. Yeah, I see my brother, my sister going in a direction that's not good. It, uh, looks like they're living in sin or whatever, but uh, whatever, I don't want to stir anything up, so I'm just not going to talk to them. Now, we often think of this passage as a physical needs. What about spiritual needs? Which is actually more important in someone's life? If we see they have a spiritual need, do we shut up our bowels of compassion and we aren't willing to share with them our concerns? See, this is brotherhood and accountability, and that's part of what we're doing this morning is being willing to share with the brotherhood that, yes, I have peace with God and my brethren as far as I know, and I want to take part in communion. And we should be willing, if we see something or some, someone or an area in someone's life that we're concerned about, and it doesn't have to be on this morning, but the idea is this whole thing is a part of brotherhood accountability and love for each other. And so I think that's where it needs to go back to, that we understand as a brotherhood, it's important that we uh, keep each other accountable and we care about each other's spiritual lives as much as we do their physical lives. Turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, a passage that 
you're probably familiar with regarding spiritual gifts and the body being fitly framed together and how this whole thing works and God setting the members in order and so forth. But you get to verses 26 and 27, it says, in this context, it says, Whether one member suffer, all members suffer with it. Or one member be honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now ye are the body of Christ and members in particular. When one member here suffers spiritually, does that bother you? Or is it not that big a deal? We've got quite a few members here, so one member suffers spiritually, one member falls off the edge somewhere. Well, that's just kind of how it works. If I'd take a hatchet, chop off your little toe, would it bother you? Oh, I've got nine more, so what? Besides that, I've got ten fingers. I can still count, so let's just get on with life. No, you'd, you'd probably suffer. Um, you know, we go to the doctor and have the slightest thing done. We want Novocaine for sure. We want to be numbed. We don't want any pain. Who wants their teeth drilled without some kind of numbing process going on? No, we, because it hurts, even in the smallest areas maybe of our body. Do we feel the same concern in the brotherhood when someone's suffering? And if so, are we willing to share with that person even if it's difficult? And I'll tell you, it's not easy. It's not easy for the pastor, and I don't think it's easy for a lot of people. If it's easy for you... To go to someone and point out an area of their life you're concerned about, then maybe that's a problem too. That if that's just, oh yeah, I just love going to people and telling them where they're wrong. Well, somebody probably needs to come talk to you at that point. Because it should be a thing of, of difficulty that we, it's, it's hard to share with, maybe, with people. But if we love them enough, would we? What about our own family, our own children? We tend to share with them, especially as we're raising them up, areas of concern. What about brothers and sisters? Well, Micah led a song this morning in the Sunday school opening. I'm going to read a couple of verses of it. It's 350 in your hymns of the church. It says, heart with loving heart united, met to know God's holy will, Let his love in us ignited, more and more our spirits fill. He the head and we the members, we reflect the light he is. He the master, we the brothers, he is ours and we are his. Verse 2 says, may we also love each other and all selfish claims deny that the brother for the brother will not hesitate to die. Even so our Lord has loved us. For our lives he shed his blood. Still he grieves and still he suffers when we mar the brotherhood. I'll not read verse 3 there. I thought that song kind of fit with what we're doing today. So this council meeting thing, I already mentioned uh, concern about maybe moving toward Protestant evangelicalism. I think there's two dangers when it comes to the whole idea of coming to communion and examining ourselves. The one 
is not taking communion or being afraid to because we are so fearful that we are not living a complete, perfect life. We have not been entirely sanctified, as some people would teach. You can be. And in all aspects, whether it's deeds, thoughts, motives, ideas, whatever, oh, I'm not 100% perfect, so I can't take communion. That's one ditch. The other ditch is taking communion when we're living in, in sin and knowing it, perpetual sin, and saying, well, um, that's you know, just the way I am. Can't, you know, we're human, we're going to sin, so I'll just live in sin, take communion, it's no big deal. That's just life. Without a willingness to repent or change. You may have a sin you're struggling with. Are you repenting? Are you trying to change? Are you praying about this? Are you dealing with it? And so we come to council meeting and, uh, or preparatory service, whatever you might, whatever we're doing now. I hope it's not completely uh, swung too far. And you say, well, why do we do this? Where did we get it? And I know sometimes it bothers some of you when I read a little bit, but I am going to look at a couple of things this morning from several different things. I'm going to read a little bit, so try to pay attention. I didn't do a PowerPoint. I probably should have, so you could follow along. <clears throat> Where does this come from? And first thing I want to look at here, and I believe this, most of this article, not all of it, was probably written by Harold S. Bender from what I could tell in the Mennonite Encyclopedia says, council meeting or inquiry meeting or examination meeting, the name given in the Mennonite Church, which the Mennonite Church would be the more broad conference before Mennonite Church USA, and the Amish uh, Mennonite Churches of North America, to the meeting of the congregation held prior to communion service to determine whether the membership is ready to proceed with the service. So do we look at this morning in a way that says, well, Part of this meeting is this morning is to determine if we're ready to move ahead with communion. Well, I, I think that's part of it. Going on further into the article says, although there is some variation in details of the procedure, the intent of the council meeting is always the same. Now, we don't do it exactly like this. After an appropriate sermon, the bishop either reads the entire conference discipline or current and current regulations, or in the case of the Amish, reads the particular items of conduct which are subject to discipline or currently at issue, taking the liberty as he sees fit to admonish the congregation or discuss any particular weakness or shortcomings he's observed. Well, that's what we generally don't do because it becomes then council meeting and communion simply becomes a time of kind of dealing with people and church discipline and and. And, and, some, and that's where some congregations have gotten to a point where they don't like communion at all because it just becomes a time when a bishop gets up and kind of beats you over the head for what you're not doing right and not following along with the... But if we run so far away from that that we're afraid to ever be challenged on whether or not we're actually following what the church standards and guidelines are, possibly, but I don't want to necessarily go there. And I... I'm not Amish, I've never have been, but some of you would know better. But I understand in the Amish setting, council meeting sermon is usually based on Matthew 18 and 1 Corinthians 5. I don't know if that's the case or not, but if you look at those passages, that would make sense there. Then it talks about a number of different methods or ways different congregations do it. We probably follow along more after the Lancaster Conference than some is the way, the way we actually Follow, have the service. Uh, 
Um, it says that in that, in that case, uh, they would address the questions regarding peace and readiness, which are audibly answered. But there was a question added that we don't, we don't use. And I don't ever remember this question being used here, but it was more common in some of the Mennonite churches at one point, and maybe we should. The question is asked to the group, like in the room here, are you satisfied with the housekeeping of the congregation? And I don't think they're talking about church cleaning like we're going to do Monday evening. In other words, that question goes to the brotherhood from the leaders. Are you satisfied with how we're keeping house here? And, and, you, and that opens it up to... This question gave opportunity to the members to comment on or criticize the manner in which the bishop and ministers have been handling the discipline of the congregation or to criticize the state of the congregation in general. And it talks about the fact that partly one of the reasons we we lost some of that in the churches is because Sometimes it says occasionally lengthened unduly by a critical member who occupied much time in the room. If you're my age, you remember some of that. And you sit back here and you're singing on about the fourth song and you're wondering if that group's ever coming out. And so I think, again, that pendulum swung then to where people are afraid to share much of anything there because they don't want to be in there for 15, 20 minutes. By the 1950s and 60s, the above lengthy and often tedious procedure kind of went away to what was more of a, after the message, if you're willing to move ahead with communion, and I'm not asking you to do this, but the the way it was done was, you can stand or rise and kind of a vote was taken, and it looks like the majority of people stood, so sit back down, we're having communion next Sunday or the following week. By the end of the 20th century, the council meeting had disappeared from almost all Mennonite church congregations. That would have been conference congregations. They lose something? Does it matter anymore in the conference churches? The entire council meeting concept and procedures has deep roots in tradition and undoubtedly goes back to the very beginning of Anabaptist movement. Similar practices are formerly common among the, the Dutch, the German, the Swiss, the Russian, the Hutterite groups, and are still maintained in more conservative bodies, such as the old colony, Klein Gemeinde, and I'm not sure if I said that right, um, and the Church of God in Christ. And then it mentions uh, one of the articles in the Schleitheim Confession of Faith, which I want to read. Schleitheim Confession of Faith was put together in uh, 1527, just a couple of years after the beginning of the Anabaptist movement. Michael Sattler was very instrumental in that uh, art, in that conference. They got together trying to kind of put together some articles that they could all agree on in the Anabaptist Church. Michael Sattler was a Catholic priest who had been converted, and probably this helping with this document probably didn't help the fact that I think he died the same year, very torturous death for uh, his Anabaptist beliefs. Uh, Would we be willing to die to put together something to try to unify and actually hold together what we believe in different groups? 
And this is what it says as we think about readiness for uh, communion. This is the third article of seven. Concerning the breaking of bread, which we, which we have become one and agree thus. In other words, this is what they agreed on. All those who desire to break the one bread in remembrance of the broken body of Christ and all those who wish to drink one drink in remembrance of the shed blood of Christ, they must beforehand be united in the body of Christ. That is the congregation of God. In other words, before the actual communion, they are to be united as one and, and even as far as moving ahead with it, from what I understood. But um, that is the congregation of God, whose head is Christ, and that by baptism. For as Paul indicates, we cannot be partakers of the same time the table of the Lord and the table of devils, nor can we at the same time partake and drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of devils. That is, all those who have fellowship with the dead works of darkness have no part in the light. Thus, all those who follow the devil and the world have no part with those who have been called out of the world unto God. And those who lie in evil have no part in the good. And it goes on from there a little bit. So that goes back to the beginning of Anabaptism. The difference kind of moves off to if we believe in close communion. There's closed communion, close communion, and open communion. And I'm seeing more and more of a push. And just recently talking to a minister in our AMF circles who says is pushing his church to move to open communion. Or anyone can commune. It doesn't matter. J.C. Winger, who um, was... Uh, a historian and a writer. Actually would have preached here a few times, I believe. Uh, wrote some things and in uh, his Introduction to Theology, which that book is still available. Leland Haynes had that reprinted. I think there's probably still some copies available. He says, The main question associated with the observance of the Lord's Supper is that of who should be admitted to the table. For those who practice what is open communion, and they have their reasons for it, but I'll move on here, it says, There is another side, however. The assumption of those who defend close communion is that the Lord's Supper requires a common faith and a common separation from the world. Furthermore, the scriptures teach that although the individual shall examine himself, the church also does have some responsibility for the Christian life uh, of its members. Those who hold to close communion do not claim omniscience. They claim only that the Bible requirements for membership in the church and for the admissions of the Lord's table. A major reason for close communion is that the church discipline would be meaningless if only the individual himself were the judge as to whether he enjoyed full fellowship in the congregation. It seems impossible to recognize the norms of all the other denominations as satisfying New Testament requirements for church membership. Close communion is therefore in part made necessary by the behavior of some professing Christians. And in part, it is associated by the sub-Christian standards of some denominations. It would seem inconsistent to refuse communion to a member of one's own group for accepting the, uh, for discipline of the, in the group, but to offer communion to an individual from another group having no such disciplinary standard. He also says the basic question 
Therefore, as whether those groups having their present high requirements for membership and communion shall lower these standards down to the level of Christendom, which too often appears lukewarm spiritually. Shall the church succumb to the easygoing type of Christian life, which is all too prevalent today? And must it follow the Lord in, uh, or must it follow the Lord in personal cross-bearing and earnest discipleship at any cost? And in Doctrines of the Bible, you can find some things on this as well. It says the texts state very clearly and definitely the importance of confining the communion to those who are one in Christ, unstained with forgiven sin, or with that you'd have to have your sins forgiven. You might say, well, that's just all Anabaptist stuff. That's just, uh, what about the early church? Did they care about being ready for communion, or could just anyone, did it, did it matter back then? Well, there was an, there's a document called the Didache, which was written probably the late first century or the very early second century, which is also called the writings or the teachings of the Twelve Apostles. And when it comes to communion, it says this, um, Gather together each Sunday, break bread and give thanks, first confessing your sins, that your sacrifice may be pure. And let no man, having a disagreement with his brother, join you until they have been reconciled, that your sacrifice may not be defiled. For it was this sacrifice that was spoken of the Lord. In every place and at every time, offer a pure sacrifice. For I am a great king, says the Lord, and my name is wonderful among the nations. Even they had a concern and a care that you had a relationship with the Lord and a good relationship with others before you came to communion. And if you didn't, they weren't supposed to allow you to come because it, was, it would defile the sacrifice or the communion. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I think there are a couple of passages here that should give us direction in the idea of, of taking communion. And I realize we can say, well, there's different ways maybe of looking at these passages. But verse 28 through 30 of 1 Corinthians chapter 11 says, But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. Turn over to the book of Hebrews. Going along with this, and again, this isn't to keep anyone from communion. Communing, it's to help us Truly examine our lives so that we don't defile the sacrifice of the Lord. In Hebrews chapter 10, verses 25 through 31. And I read verse 25 because it's talking about the assembling together. And it flows right into this next section. So what does brotherhood accountability and brotherhood love, how does that connect to this? So in verse 25, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together is a matter of some in. But exhorting one another, and so much more as you see the day approaching. For if we sin willfully, after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins, but a certain 
fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation which shall devour the adversaries. He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. Of how much sore punishment suppose ye shall he be thought worthy who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God and hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing and hath done despite unto the Spirit of grace. For we know him that saith, Vengeance belongeth unto me, I will recompense, saith the Lord. And again, the Lord shall judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Those are the admonitions to us as individuals to make sure that we are endeavoring to live a Christian life that is holy. And again, I understand we all stumble, we all fall, we all maybe struggle in certain areas, things that happen. But we don't want to move into a nonchalant approach to communion saying, well, I can't deal with those things, I just struggle with them, so it just doesn't matter. That just doesn't matter. Those scriptures I just read mean what they say. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10 is more of an admonition to the church. And I realize you can say, well, this has to do with uh, more the idea of, again, this thing of offering things to idols and so forth. But it's interesting that some of the early church looked at this passage and took it right to communion and the idea of who we commune with in our setting. Wherefore, my dearly beloved, flee from idolatry. This is verse 14. I speak as to wise men. Judge ye what I say. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we, being many, are one bread and one body. For we are all partakers of that one bread. So we're all together in this. Behold, Israel after the flesh, are not they which eat the sacrifices partakers of the altar? What shall I say then? That the idol is anything, or that which is offered in sacrifice to idols is anything? But I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to devils and not to God. And I would not that ye should have fellowship with devils. Ye cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of devils. Ye cannot be partakers of the Lord's table and of the table of devils. Do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? So when we come to the Lord's table... Do we come there with an attitude of it doesn't matter what I'm doing? Do we drink from the cup of the devils and try to drink from the cup of the Lord? And how is that connected to the brotherhood as well? I think it's important that we continue as a brotherhood to truly examine our lives. And it's not always pretty when we do that. We see things we don't like. And that doesn't mean then we walk away from say, well, I'm not going to take communion then because I see things in my life I don't like. No, that's when we, we pray about it or we confess it one to another. And that doesn't necessarily mean you stand up this morning and confess it to everyone. You could, but maybe you have a friend. Uh, Gary talked to us in the opening this morning about friendship. Do you have a friend that you can go to and say, hey, I'm struggling with this or I did this or this is something. And, and you open up, you confess it and you ask for prayer. Maybe you do that sometimes in your Sunday school classes. There's different ways of doing that. Or you just say, well, it doesn't matter. I'm just going to stay right on living in this. 
and then you, we come to communion as if there's no big deal. How do, we, how do we do that? It's not a matter of staying away from communion. It's a matter of getting our life right so we're ready for it. And I think as a brotherhood, it's a matter of being willing to encourage each other along the way. If we truly love each other, then we will truly challenge each other to be right with God. If we don't love each other, then it really doesn't matter much, does it? It really won't matter much. But I think we want to continue to love each other. And I think as we see uh, from the very early church on, there was a concern that taking communion when you had either um, you weren't living right with God or you had issues with your brother or sister that you that would defile the sacrifice as it says but we want those things cleared up as much as is, is possible with us and I would just like to share this morning my testimony that you know, it's not always easy to examine my own life and see what's there and how, where am I at? And are there things that, that need to be taken care of? But I just want to say that I'm thankful that the shed blood of Jesus Christ and the working of his Holy Spirit um, challenges me. And when I fail or when I fall, that I'm thankful for the, the Holy Spirit and the word that says, you need to deal with this. And it's only by the shed blood of Jesus Christ that I can stand before you this morning and say, as far as I know, I have peace with God and my fellow men as much as I know. But, um, and, and I want to say this. It doesn't mean that between now and the next time I stand up here and say this, if God gives me life, that I won't fall at all. But I trust that God will be there to convict me and show me so that I can keep that um, keep that between myself and God. And if I have offended anyone here, caused someone uh, to stumble or something, uh, please let me know. I want to have a good relationship with my brothers and sisters as well.